geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil du mich gut verstehst. Hello, and welcome to the Panzer Podcast. My name is John Burgess, and I will be your host as we deep dive into all things tanks. Today, we will be discussing the aftermath of Unternehmen Citadel, or Operation Citadel, through the lens of 2020 hindsight, particularly of those who fought in the battle, observed the battle, along with the various commanders and generals who had something to add to the conversation after the fact. Later, we will drill down on the repair network used by the Wehrmacht to keep the Panthers rolling and how it contributed to the success and the failures of the Panther. Lastly, I hope to go over the Burger Panther variant, which was the Recovery Panther, as well as the Sonderkraftfahrzeug 9, uh, an 18-ton half-tracked recovery and prime mover vehicle. Let's see where today will end up. We left our story back on July 20th of 1943, just after 15 days of the fiercest fighting on the Eastern Front and the Panthers' dismal debut during the failed Kursk Offensive. But what did this actually mean for Panzer Regiment 39? After Operation Citadel, the unit itself was pulled from the front line to be sent back for rest, repair, and to generally lick their wounds. Though in reality, the Panthers took on far more losses after the battle and during the withdrawal out of the Kursk salient rather than in combat. We noted there were still 41 operational Panthers on July 20th, or about 20% of the starting force, but on July 31st, that number had dropped to 20 operational Panthers, and further, on August 11th, only 9 Panthers out of the 212 available were operational, with 156 being totally written off. Now, this number of total write-offs increased threefold since July 20th, from 58 to 156. Why? Well, during the battle, the Panzer Werkstatt Company, Panzer Workshop Company, assigned at the regimental level, along with their Panzer Werkstattzug, the Panzer Workshop Platoon, which had two of these per workshop company. These could only recover Panzers that had not fallen behind enemy lines. It was easier than having to attempt recovery of such vehicles as the enemy advances and overruns these positions, meaning more Panzers would be lost during a retreat since the immobilized panzers would have to be left behind, falling into enemy hands or being blown up by the crews themselves as to prevent the enemy any use of these fallen panzers. The panthers suffered this fate at a seemingly higher rate than the rest of the panzers as they were so heavy and thus required more of these heavy prime movers and burga panthers to recover any panthers that were broken down or otherwise unable to move under their own power. Remember, though, it oftentimes took two, maybe three, of the SDKFZ-9, that is to say the Heavy Prime Mover, or FAMO as it was known, just to retrieve a single panther, a rather time-consuming and vehicle-intensive process. With this in mind, we can clearly see how the panther total losses could increase so rapidly as Operation Citadel concluded and the front lines began to recede back towards Germany whose positions were becoming more and more untenable. From August 3rd to November 3rd of 1943, the Soviets will have advanced some 500 kilometers, or 310 miles west, along the 1500-kilometer, 
or 932-mile front, all the while liberating towns like Belgorod, Kharkov, Stalino, Lubny, Orel, Smolensk, and even Kiev, pushing the Germans further back to the west at an alarming rate. The lessons learned from Operation Citadel were known almost immediately and felt during the battle. Commander of the Stab Panzer Brigade 10, the HQ section of Panzer Regiment 39, Oberst Decker, describes the plight of his Panthers as such. Quote, Dear General, the Panzer Brigade was attached to the Großdeutschland Division. The second regiment under command was Panzer Regiment Großdeutschland, with its eight Panzerkampfwagen IV Kompanien, or Panzer IV Companies, and a Tiger Company. The commander of the Panzer Regiment Großdeutschland was Graf Strachwitz, the Panzer Lowe, or the Tank Lion. Working with him was very unpleasant. During the attack of July 4th, he simply did not come on the radio and operated independently. This went on so far that I was ordered to appear before General von Konbelsdorf, commander of 48th Panzer Corps, to answer for the brigade headquarters not functioning. In the interim, Strachwitz directed the Panzer Brigade and employed the Panthers outright crazily. This resulted in continuous mine damage and flank protection was never built up. Therefore, the Panthers, whose sides were vulnerable, were shot up. He continues. Next day, in an attack with 300 Panzers, I charged up to the second defensive position. After successfully completing this attack with few losses, I was ordered to report to General von Knobelsdorf. When I returned after four days, in comparison to the 200 Panthers with which we had started, the number of operational Panthers had shrunk to 12 due to idiotic tactical employment. Vajer von Lauschert was desperate and welcomed my return. Personnel losses were also very high. The Panzer Regiment, meaning Panzer Regiment 39, had lost 9 officers killed and 19 wounded officers. End quote. Oberst Decker, though critical of the deployment of the Panthers, does praise the tank where applicable, stating, quote, In general, it can be said that the Panther is a very good vehicle in spite of several startup illnesses and the motor is still too vulnerable. Unlike the Tiger, the sides are not invulnerable to 76mm anti-tank guns. The main gun, however, is exceptional. Up to now, the regiment has knocked out 263 tanks, KV-1 tanks were knocked out at ranges up to 3,000 meters, or 9,800 feet, and T-34 tanks at ranges of 1,500 meters and 2,000 meters, or 4,900 to 6,500 feet, end quote. So we can see here the dualities of the Panther. On one hand, the breakdowns, engine fires, and vulnerable sides were a hindrance, Though the main gun was exceptional, and clearly the gunners were engaging long-range targets with success. Assuming the figures of Overstecker of 263 knocked-out enemy tanks is a true and accurate number, the Panther is dishing out about as much as it is taking. However, I take these numbers with a grain of salt. During battle, it is oftentimes very difficult to know who actually killed what, and if the vehicle was simply knocked out and recovered later, or a total loss, or any number of things. Also, at 2,000 meters, how do you know that your tank hit the target and that it wasn't the friendly next to you who got the kill? What if it had been reported twice? 
two separate units each claim the kill. There are too many variables or, you know, human error to get in the way. There's adrenaline, memory issues, boastfulness, any number of things can muddy the waters. Not to mention, this type of accounting is why a lot of Soviet records of the Battle of Kursk cannot be trusted either. Early Soviet reports after Prokovoka, oof, had bloated figures of 300 to 500 German tanks destroyed, which was not possible since maybe hmm, 300 German tanks were ever present, but those figures were taken as gospel for quite some time. The German reporting wasn't immune from this either. Their own claimed kills are almost certainly inflated and flat-out fabrications. Thankfully, as the years separate us from the battle, we can distill more information from sources and get a better and more focused picture, hopefully devoid, but not always, of the propaganda and falsities promoted by each of the belligerent governments at the time. As I've stated before, I don't give kill counts much weight for our narrative. It's more important to me to look at the operational status of the Panthers to get an accurate count of combat casualties than it is to examine the numbers of claimed kills. After the battle, as most Monday morning quarterbacking is done, riddled with loads of shoulda, woulda, coulda sentiments, is nothing groundbreaking. And to be fair, this is how most armies learn their lessons still, to this day, with twisted metal and blood. Thankfully for us, quite a lot of these German officers, upset with their showing during Operation Citadel, were quite diligent in their note-taking, and because Major Street, commander of the Panzer School, the tank school, compiled the following list into something of a teachable moment. Quote, 1. Due to bunching up, the firepower from our Panthers couldn't be employed. The enemy succeeded in knocking out a high number, and very many Panthers were lost on mines. 2. Pioneers were not available for mine clearing. Time was not allowed to search for gaps. The exact opposite was ordered. In spite of the minefields, the order was given to immediately continue the advance. Number 3. Attacks were conducted without issuing situational orders. The companies knew absolutely nothing about the attack plans. Confusion set in from the start, since neither objectives, formations, or direction were ordered. Panthers being thickly bunched up directly in front of the enemy position led to unnecessarily high losses. The Ab Tailung commander must firmly lead his companies in the attack with clear orders. Unfortunately, the companies were often self-dependent. As an example, sudden changes in direction could only be recognized after it was noticed that several Panthers had already turned. 4. When confronted with obstacles, only the number of Panthers that are absolutely needed to subdue the enemy are to advance in the forward line. 5. Appropriate flank protection was never established during the first attacks. This led to unbearably high losses. If they had already received flanking fire during an attack, companies must first build up flank protection. Also, the company commander must know the objective and the attack direction. 6. Later, when attacks were made with flank protection and broad formations, the losses were noticeably small. Therefore, space and intervals within combat formations should be longer than the standard 50 meters, but in no case should they be any shorter. 7. 
Tactical training as a unit didn't occur. This made itself very unpleasantly noticeable indeed. Number eight, defense against close attack and envelopment from tank hunter teams are always difficult to repulse with the Panther's weapons. Number nine, the Panther does not possess the ability to lay a smokescreen, which proved to be tactically disadvantageous. An effective smokescreen device is urgently requested by the troops. Number 10. At the start, problems with the radio sets and intercom made command quite difficult. The problems were solved in the interim, and communications improved sufficiently to meet the troops' specifications. Number 11. Additional tank recovery services must be provided at the right time, especially when high losses occur when breaking off action or retreating. 12. Recovery units attached to the army are to be utilized. 13. The Panther is clearly superior in tank versus tank combat. 14. Combating anti-tank guns is still quite difficult. In most cases, anti-tank guns are difficult to spot, they are small targets, and are well dug in. In many cases, it is difficult to destroy the entire crew. Therefore, survivors reman the gun. In comparison, the Panther presents a very large target that is easily recognized. 15. In general, Russian employment of anti-tank guns is approximately as follows. They set up a very strong anti-tank defense in favorable terrain, mostly along the edge of woods. The 76mm guns are the lighter anti-tank weapon. These positions are supported by concentrated artillery and mortars that are placed further back. The infantry is positioned in hiding, ready to attack with tank support. If he receives energetic defensive fire, he quickly pulls out and tries to lure our forces into counterattacking. Counterattacks, then, are almost always repulsed with heavy losses, since they collide with the overwhelming defense. End quote. Alright, let's catch our breath. That was a lot of information Major Street just threw out at us, but realistically... We've heard all of that before last episode. We didn't just see it all at once, and to me, it seems very clear what happened. A regular old snafu. For those of you who do not know that word, it's a German word, you can go look it up. Really though, a lack of training as a large unit, a lack of recon, a lack of testing, and a lack of inner operational knowledge of how to utilize the Panther was to blame. But was not the root cause. The root cause was, well... It was Hitler and his offensively obsessed strategic mind. A strategic mind that was diluted by his madness and status as an ideologue. That's my attempt at high-minded criticism. But really, Hitler forcing the offensive to take place before the Panther was ready allowed for these gaps. And by gaps, I mean valleys. And by valleys, I mean canyons of unforeseen complications that would plague the Panther in the opening two weeks of her combat debut and beyond. Certainly, the German high command identified these shortcomings and was determined to mitigate them as the war continued. But as the Reich continued to fight this war, her manpower reserves, her industrial resources, and all of that institutional knowledge of combat veterans would dwindle due to the Götterdämmerung or Twilight of the Gods, or as we all know it, Total War. The tangible resources required to wage Total War were intertwined with the non-tangible. Both were finite and scarce within the rank, with each veteran tank crew being smashed 
only to be replaced with hollow crews of less than adequately trained men who were rushed through the motions was basically going to forever damn the Panzerwaffe to unsustainable losses and eventual defeat. Without postulating too much, it would be safe to say that after Kursk in 1943, the Wehrmacht had been defeated. One could argue that maybe after the failures of Stalingrad in 1942, it was already over. But my point being that, you know, after August of 1943, the Wehrmacht would be on the retreat until the final days of the war. I've read it in some places as the long retreat or the great retreat. Essentially, the war was no longer winnable. And the writing was on all of the walls and the ceiling and the roof and the floors. But this war could not simply just come to an end. No, no, no. There was, there was still s- nearly two years worth of fighting left in Europe and millions of human beings would die before that conclusion could be reached. The not-so-tangible resources, lost in our case, is to me focused into two groups, training and experience. As noted by General Inspector der Panzertruppen, General Heinz Guderian, in an analysis report sent to Chef de Stabes, OKH, General Zetzler, quote, the time allotted for training was too short. Therefore, the drivers did not achieve the necessary proficiency. The maintenance personnel were not sufficiently trained. The gunners and commanders did not receive the necessary tactical training. End quote. Looking over my notes from the previous episode, a lot of the failures in the opening days of Citadel were motor fires, transmission fires, and final drive failures. Failures that were noted could be mitigated by properly using the clutch and brake system without overstressing the systems and subsystems required to do so. But you don't get proficient if you never train, and you can't get much needed experience if your first time out you blow up your transmission or set the motor on fire, or worse yet, you get blown up because your tank commander had neither the training to know better or the tactical experience to know to keep his flanks safe. What's that horrible cliche you hear in uh, modern military circles? Practice how you fight? Well, that's true, and Guderian adds a couple of other notes, almost like an excuse for the failures of the Panthers, never blaming those responsible for the lack of oversight. (coughs) Hitler. (coughs) That rushed these men and machines into combat in the first place. Quote, Because of the necessary rebuild work at Grafenvor, training exercises were accomplished only at the platoon level. The missing training was very noticeable indeed. A large part of the technical and tactical losses are traceable to this cause. It almost reminds me of the infamous Kindermord, or Massacre of the Innocents, of the First Battle of Ypres in 1914. This event occurred when several reserve corps made up of mostly young, college-age student volunteers who basically they were thrown directly into the gaping maw known as the Great War, sent to die long before they were ever ready to fight. These lessons, however, learned in previous wars do not always carry over into the next. While identifying more tangible, physical, and mechanical issues can be done from the safety of driving trials and training, some of these would have to be identified in combat and combat alone. Outside of the obvious ones we are already party to, like thin side armor, or the ready-to-fail final drives. 
things like weak spots in the turret by way of the pistol port or the communication ports were when hit weak points that could fail and injure or kill the crew within notably the turret gun mantlet the curved cast steel portion of the front of the turret which houses both the main cannon and coaxial machine gun along with the optics was quite thick and curved however this curve was also known as a shot trap a shot trap as defined by the likes of steven zaloga in his book panther vs sherman quote a shot trap is a deficiency in an armored vehicle's design it is a location where a shell that has struck but fails to penetrate may ricochet in such a manner as to hit another area of the vehicle where it is more likely to cause damage. End quote. For the Panther, this shot trap was the curved lower half of the gun mantlet. It was rounded in such a way that an incoming round could, and oftentimes would, deflect downwards after ricocheting off of the thick mantlet and into the rather thin roof plate. Remember, only 16 millimeters thick, causing what Nicholas Moran, better known as the Chieftain, calls a, quote, significant emotional event, end quote. This would happen for the would-be driver and the radio operator, who now have an incoming shell landing in their laps, or rather, through their laps. Nicht gut. Oberstleutnant Reinhold further comments on the roof armor, quote, the roof armor is too weak. Armor-piercing rounds that hit the lower half of the gun mantlet were deflected and penetrated the roof. This resulted in driver and radio operator casualties. Strengthening the armor is not possible, since the suspension is not adequate for a larger load. End quote. Another anecdote I found regarding technical issues was in regard to the hatch of the commander's cupola, which stated, quote, it is difficult to operate the hatch for the commander's cupola when the panther is standing on a slope or when the panther is on fire. Hatches for the driver and radio operator have jammed so that evacuation was not possible. End quote. Not to pile on too much here, but in regards to the driver and operator hatches, Oberstleutnant Reinhold also had this to say. Quote, the new hatch design caused problems, especially for the driver and radio operator. When hit, the hatch cover jams and can't be opened. If the panther was to catch on fire, in many cases, the driver and radio operator couldn't evacuate. In action, crews don't close the hatches, and they accept the loss of protection so that they can still quickly evacuate if a fire occurs. End quote. So that's fun. During what could only be described as the moment in which I would really, really want my hatch to open, i.e., the tank's on fire, it might not function properly, or at all. Now, the sloping issue with regards to the commander's hatch was a problem. Along with the turret ring becoming unable to turn on a slope, both of these were, um, they're, they're a physics problem. Granted, I'm not a physics major, or even someone who ought to be commenting on any such things. This isn't a physics podcast by any means. But essentially, the weight of the vehicle and the tolerances, that is, the space in between pieces, were so limited in their measurements that a slight incline could force these things out of alignment, causing them to jam due to the immense weight of the vehicle or the hatch itself. Speaking of slopes and inclines, another one of the serious mechanical deficiencies found with the Panzer Aufs D 
lay within the engine compartment. We have noted before about the engine fires due to the fuel collecting within the watertight compartment and catching fire. It was not known immediately, but as the battle progressed, the engineers in the Werkstatt companies came to the conclusion that faulty fuel pumps, 20 in Panzer Abteilung 52, were leaking fuel and thus creating a situation where hot engines could ignite errant fuel within the compartment. When idling on steep slopes, or worse, when climbing them, the engine would be working over time. So more fuel is being pumped into the motor, and thus more fuel is being spilled. Not to mention, the engine is quickly becoming hotter, not because it's overheating, but because you're using more RPMs, and thus it's getting hotter, until finally a fire breaks out. Which, as noted by the engineers, quote, when on a steep slope, the panther easily catches on fire. End quote. Though most of these fires would, you know, they, they would get put out by the crews or the automatic fire extinguisher system when that was working. So it was it was an issue, but it wasn't always catastrophic. Sure, fire in a tank in an enclosed area is not great, but at least you probably could get out if you left your hatches open. And if the automatic fire extinguisher system was working, you would just have to get everything cleaned up and get your tank back rolling again. General motor failures were notably high in the beginning days of combat, with 12 defective motors having been replaced by July 8th alone. Though after this period, problems with the motors themselves decreased. This was owing to the, quote, breaking in, end quote, of the engines, as it was speculated that the motors had not sufficiently been broken in, which led to these failures. And, you know, this is, this is true of most automotive engines, and in 1943, this was even true of the mighty Panzer engines. Under normal circumstances, this probably wouldn't be an issue, but due to the nature of the conflict, especially in the summer of 1943, with how frenetic the strategic situation had become, Hitler and OKH did not have the time to spare for things like adequate training or the breaking in of engines. Furthermore, Oberstleutnant Reinhold commented about the motors, quote, the cause for motor failures is possibly traceable to the short run-in time and unskilled drivers. Motors were over-revved. This caused overheating and broken connecting rods. In many cases, fuel pumps failed. The pump seals leaked and pump membranes were defective. Leaks in oil line and fuel line connections increased the danger of fire. End quote. As we can tell, one error begets the next. The unskilled drivers misusing the engine causing it to overheat, overheating which causes a fire because of the over-revved engine, the overworked and underperforming fuel pump fails, leaking flammable fuel into an engine compartment that is watertight, which is overheating, and the malfunctioning engine leads to a catastrophic event, like a fire, which would knock out your tank. We've now covered the extent of what I might call the naughty list for Panther inadequacies and failings. But that's not the whole story and it would be quite disingenuous of me not to report the positive marks the Panther received from both the troops on the ground and their commanders. The big takeaway, at least from the German perspective, is the effectiveness of the KWK-42 L-70 cannon, which performed all but flawlessly during Zitadel, with the exception of the fume extractor, which was inadequate and prone to failure. Heinz Guderian, General Inspector de Panzertruppen, notes in his July 17th report to General Zetzler, quote, 
The accuracy and penetrating ability is good. The average range is 1500 to 2000 meters. Also, one T-34 was killed at a range of 3000 meters. After the third shot, the commander's vision, however, was hindered by burnt propellant fumes, causing the eyes to tear. The Shestav, or observation periscope, was still not available. End quote. The secondary positive point of contention for the Panther during Operation Zitadel was in fact her armor, but only the front armor. With the caveat that the side armor was essentially garbage, once again in Guderian's report to Zetzler, quote, Enemy weapons did not penetrate through the frontal armor of the Panther. Even direct hits straight on, fired from 76mm anti-tank and tank guns, did not penetrate through the gun mantlet. However, the sides of the Panther were penetrated at ranges exceeding 1,000 meters. The 76mm anti-tank and tank rounds broke cleanly through the turret sides and both the sloped and vertical hull sides. In most cases, the Panther immediately caught on fire. This was possibly due to the large amount of propellant in the ammunition that is carried. End quote. This sentiment would define the Panther through its service life. An excellent gun, good frontal armor, poor side armor, and shit reliability. I can say that there are improvements made as we get into the later models of the Panther in terms of reliability, but like we've thoroughly discussed at length, a lot of the core systems would remain unchanged, and these core systems were the basis of a lot of these problems. Before we close the books on Operation Citadel completely, I want to share some other figures to put into perspective the totality of the battle. By the time the dust settled after Operation Citadel, here's Group Sud, Army Group South, had lost a considerable amount of her armored strength. Noting that 175 Panzers, excluding the 156 Panthers, were total write-offs. That's 14% of their starting strength. And they were down to 472 operational Panzers by July 31st compared to about 947 only a month earlier. Whereas, Panther losses were at a staggering 75% compared to the 14% at the division level. Which, comparing the two, the division itself was 50% operational, while the Panthers were a ghost of their former self at only 5% operational. This number would remain in flux throughout the war, but if we're going to sit on two data points for comparison's sake, it wasn't a good look for the Panthers at all. Besides the existential threat posed by the aftermath of the Battle of Kursk, another failed feature noted as an inadequacy of the Panthers was not so much their own flaws, but rather shortcomings and bottlenecks in the repair network itself. We noted earlier that the majority of total write-offs did not occur until after the main battle, during the general retreat and the withdrawal. How can this be? Well, I hope you're a fan of logistics, because we are about to take a deep dive into the exciting world of the German repair network. Strap in, Kameraden. Prior to the war, the network for repairing armored units was, how shall we say, quite different than it shall look in just a few years' time. The Heimat Kraftfahrpark Organization, the Homeland Motor Vehicle Park Organization, HKPO for short, was the umbrella organization which contained the garrison repair services meant to conduct maintenance and repairs of the newly formed Panzerwaffe. In garrison, which just means 
the home base for that unit. It was usually a town or a military base within a town where the troops would have their barracks, their vehicles, their armory, parade grounds, etc. For armored units, this garrison would always include the Heimat Kraftfahr Park, or HKP, or Homeland Motor Vehicle Park. This entity is where the armored units would reside, for both maintenance by the crews and civilian workers, but also as a repair station for simple fixes. If a repair required any more than about 10 to 12 hours, it would be sent to a civilian shop or directly back to the manufacturer. During maneuvers, a mobile detachment would be sent along with the combat troops and vehicles. In essence, it was the I-Gruppe or the Instansetsung group in its infancy. We'll get into that in a second. A Gruppenführer, an officer in charge of a section or a group of men, supervised both the military and civilian shops within his repair district, which would be the extent of the garrison within which the HKP resided which also included the, oof, I'm going to murder this one, Zentraler Zatzteilager, or ZEL, Centralized Spare Parts Depot. While this method was feasible during peacetime, war games, and training, when war broke out, the civilian shops would have to be commandeered by the army to keep order, prevent war profiteering, and occasionally theft of now very important and quite scarce automotive parts spare parts which the HKP would have to source on their own, independent of any hierarchy, directly from the manufacturers and when they were available. Spare parts, I might add, which were not stockpiled in any way, shape, or form. When the war kicked off, these spare parts depot had a stockpile of basically nothing. This would change throughout the war, but in 1939, there was already a deficiency. As with all aspects of the German repair network, the HKPO, that is, Heimat Kraftfahrpark Organization, was layered and tiered. Above the HKP, or the Heimat Kraftfahrpark, resides the lofty Armee Kraftfahrpark, or AKP, which, if you guessed, functions like the HKP, but on a grander scale, you would be correct. The AKP would encompass several HKP into its own zone of control, or district, which, much like the HKP, would repair vehicles within its own cadre and the way the repair network operated, the higher up the chain you went, the longer, more extensive repairs and overhauling were available. Again, up to a limit, because once a vehicle was damaged beyond the capabilities or expertise of the HKP or AKP, the manufacturer would once again have to become involved and that vehicle would get shipped back to their facilities. As early as 1940, bottlenecks in the logistics were identified. After the campaigns in Poland, the Balkans, and France, there were never quite enough spare parts. And for Germany's industry, this meant she could either produce new tanks or spare parts for the tanks that are already in service. Never both, never simultaneously. A critical oversight in the repair network as a whole was the German doctrine of what can only be exclaimed as using what is available in the country you've just invaded, meaning commandeering locomotives, cars, trucks, and whatever else they could use in the way of foreign infrastructure and vehicles. And while this worked okay in Western Europe, 
The campaign in Poland ought to have made it clear to the German high command that the different rail gauges, lack of roads, lack of automobiles, and just the just the factory and repair depots to fix these automobiles was only a sliver of what was in the West, and it was only just a taste of what was to come in the East. Not to mention, the lack of spare parts and working knowledge of captured equipment was quite extensive, and the further these captured vehicles traveled away from their home ports and factories, the more quickly that they would have to be abandoned or scrapped as their service life could not be maintained without proper spares and working knowledge of how to maintain these vehicles. After the campaigns of 1939 and 1940, the Heimat Kraftfahrpark was proven to be more or less successful in the basic sense that the Panzer units did not grind to a complete halt. However, because of these early campaigns, the introspectiveness which followed allowed for the summation that a reorganization effort should be made in preparation for the invasion of Russia. Enter the Zentrakraft Vest, ZKW, and the Zentrakraft Ost, ZKO, which just basically consolidated the HKP networks into a central west and a central east. Zentrakraft Ost, or East, which is the umbrella organization that we shall chiefly concern ourselves with in this narrative, the Zentrakraft Ost system took the more loosely organized HKPO system and consolidated and departmentalized itself into several supporting branches. By May of 1942, ZKO was beginning to shape up. Here's a list of the departments with which the German army used to keep its motorized, mechanized, and armored forces rolling. Group 1, Command and Organization. This covers the deployment uh, and organization of the i Dienste, the I-Truppe, I-Gruppe, and I-Staffel, for which the I stands for Instandsetzung, or Repair. So the I-Troop were the front-line repair mechanics, the I-Gruppe were the more advanced mechanics, and finally the I-Staffel group, which was the further advanced mechanics. This, along with the recovery platoons and the K-Verk distribution system, which is where the vehicles get sent, was all made up in Group 1. Group 2 handled personnel. Group 3, supply and spare parts, which includes the spare parts and raw material supply, which included things like winter gear, spare parts, fuel, tires, tracks, that kind of thing. Group 4 was administration. Group 5 being the technical section, which included the machinery and tool supply. Finally, you had the Staffel section of Zentrakraft Ost, which was the transit operations of the I-Truppe and the I-Dienste and other special tasks. Group 7, which was the branch office. And finally, Group 8, which was the Luftwaffe liaison, which is how you coordinated air traffic to get your parts from Germany to the front by air. It should also be noted that around this time in 1942, the ZKO was beginning to expand its workforce by recruiting foreign workers in occupied territory as well as pressing prisoners into service, which is to say the Nazis were now using slave labor in part to maintain their motor vehicles and by extension, the Panzers. This is also when the K-Verk networks began to expand by moving the otherwise immobile workshops of the HKO network to the east as the German advance continued further and deeper into Russia, creating an incredibly long and incredibly complicated network of logistics. 
The expansion of the ZKO was born directly out of the experiences of Operation Barbarossa. I know, we're taking a few steps back, but this is important. General Lieutenant Adolf von Schnell had concluded after 1942, quote, The whole park organization was a creation of gigantic dimension. It had to be built up under the pressure of the occurring events, based only on theoretical considerations, mostly under tense times or during the war. There was never time for small-scale trials under different conditions. The organization, thus, is an improvisation on a large scale. End quote. What von Schnell had learned since 1939 was how inadequate the repair services were, even from the get-go. Remember, when the German army invaded Poland, they had troubles finding adequate motorized vehicles to supplement their own, not to mention the vehicle parks to set up repair and collection points, but the campaign did not last long enough for these massive gaps to swallow up the Panzerwaffe. After a month or so, Poland capitulated, and the seriousness of the problem never fully materialized in a significant enough of a way to create a need for change. Furthermore, the campaigns in the Sudetenland, Austria, Low Countries, and even France were also quite short, and these countries were much more modern in regards to their automotive and industrial capacities. Remember, the Germans were relying on captured vehicles and using the already in place infrastructure, repair network, and spare part depots to keep these foreign vehicles running, but in German service. Shell, reflecting on these early campaigns and false sense of confidence that their program was working according to design, wrote, quote, now the prophecy which said that high level of motor vehicle equipment cannot be maintained was fulfilled. But while in the past it was believed that this was acceptable in regard to an end of the operations at the start of the bad weather, the operations continued, and this even under more difficult circumstances. Nonetheless was it achieved to deliver 210,000 vehicles instead of the requested 140,000. However, this number only provided for 20 to 25% of the target strength. Besides that, the rest of the equipment needed to be replaced as well, and maintenance could not meet the goals. Despite the Zentracraft Ost completing 30,000 repairs per week, thus, only a part of the troops could be made operational for 1942. End quote. By October of 1941, the 40,000 vehicles which had been held in reserve were already committed in an attempt to keep the motorized and mechanized troops in adequate supply. The situation only worsened as the war dragged on, and by the middle of 1942, the domestic economy had been depleted of motor vehicles just trying to keep up with the demands of the army. It was becoming more apparent by the day that the deeper into Russia the Wehrmacht drove its armies the more aggravated the maintenance and repair networks became, on top of which combat losses coupled with frontline necessities left the Panzerwaffe in a woefully inadequate position. On another edition of This is a Tangent, I want to stress here that the German army would never have enough wheeled, tracked, or otherwise motorized vehicles to supply and support the Wehrmacht. The German army, despite its best-laid propaganda films, was not a mechanized army. 
It did have mechanized and motorized elements, but by and large, the German field armies relied upon the railroads, draft animals, and most importantly to their logistics network, horses. Now you might be thinking, every army used horses, right? Sure, but with the exception of the Soviet Union, the German army by far used the most horses, 2.75 million, compared to the Soviets' 3.5 million. There is one huge distinction here, and that is how these horses were used. The Soviet Union had 80 or so cavalry divisions, mostly used as mobile troops and recon. The Germans, on the other hand, almost exclusively used their horses for logistics. There were six divisions of nominal cavalry, but realistically, they were cavalry by name only, not so much in practice. This is, of course, a gross simplification, but I wanted to make it known just how lacking in motor vehicles the Third Reich had become, and maybe more importantly, trying to keep all these desperately needed vehicles operational. Now that we've got a basic overview and history of the repair services, let's dive into some of the finer details. The Panzer Instanzetzung, Panzer Maintenance, Repair, and Recovery. These services were an element within the overall Radkraftfahrzeug Instanzetzung, or Wheeled Motor Vehicle Maintenance, which may sound odd, considering Panzers are anything but wheeled. However, without the wheeled vehicles, no Panzer unit could operate much further than the fuel allotted after departing the rail station. These intertwined services were that important, and thus they were combined underneath one umbrella. Within the Kraftfahrzeuge Instanzetzung, there are a few divisions of labor to be aware of. The Kraftfahrzeuge Instanzetzung, or the maintenance units, contained the Instanzetzung Troop, the I-Troop, which were the maintenance troops themselves, mechanics, drivers, the frontline guys. Next, you had the Instanzetzung Gruppe, the I-Gruppe, which were company-level maintenance detachment. Panzer Company, Panzer Stab, and Stamp Company, each of those would have their own I-Group. These were the on-the-spot repairs, which forced these men to stay closer to the forward units. And during battle, they were actually considered fighting troops, and they were under direct command of the Abteilung commander. The next level would be the Instanzetzung Staffel, or the I-Staffel, which HQ and heavy vehicle maintenance. There were more of these in Panther and Tiger units, but essentially they were a larger version of the I-Group with more recovery vehicles. These men in the I-Staffel were also used to relieve the I-Group of men. So when the forward troops advanced, the I-Gruppa could then move forward with them, and then the I-Staffel could take over where the I-Group had left off. They could do repairs up to a 16 to 20 hour maximum. That makes up the maintenance units. Next, you have the Panzer Instanzetzungsdienste, or the tank repair units, which contained the Panzerwerkstatt, or tank workshop. And within the Panzerwerkstatt, you had the Panzerwerkstattzug, or the workshop platoon. Each Panzerabteilung was allocated one of these, and they were also allocated a Panzerwerkstatt company. There were two Panzerwerkstattzugs to make up one Panzerwerkstatt company allocated to each Panzer regiment, often worked by sending one platoon up to the front to help with the on-the-spot repairs and recovery, while the second platoon stayed stationary as long as possible to get any long-term repairs done as soon as possible. They do the same work as the I-Staffel, but they could exceed 60 hours of repairs. 
any other repairs requiring more time were sent back to the cavework section. Further, we have the Panzer Burger Company, or the Recovery Company. Broken down Panzers were evacuated from enemy site and weapon range ASAP, recovered broken down Panzers to the I-Group and I-Staff level, and they would recover broken down Panzers to whatever available workstat as needed. Next, we have the Panzer Ersatz Teilager, the Panzer Spare Parts Depot, which was a collection point for spare parts for tanks within the Avtailung or regiment. There was a sort of a, you bring an old part, you get a new part system. Under serious circumstances, you might be able to get a part you needed with a promissory note, which sounds kind of ridiculous that you need like an IOU to go pick up a engine part so that you can get your tank running in the middle of a war. But that's, that's how it was. Next, you had the Waffenmeisteri, or the weapons master, or armorer. These were specialized I-Truppen who were there to maintain and repair the weapons of the tanks in their unit. That's all they did, and they did their job very diligently. Next, you have the Army and Heers Group in Stensetsung, which prior to and early on in the war, think pre-1942, if the Panzer Instensetsung system, the I-Gruppe through the I-Staffel, could not handle the repairs, or if there were too many repairs that had overwhelmed their services, damaged Panzers were sent to the closest Heeres Zeugmant, or collection point, which forwarded the damaged Panzers onto the manufacturer for further repairs. Next, we have the Panzer Instensetsung's Kraftfahrwerk, or K-Work, or K-Werk. The General Inspector des Führers für das Kraftverwiesen, Jacob Verlin, wrote in a letter to Keitel on February 28th of 1942, quote, The considerable number of motor vehicles in need of repair at the front, which the administrations in charge estimate to be 300,000, end quote. This prompted the creation of the K-Work system, and according to Lucas Friedel in his book Repairing the Panzers, Volume 1, Quote, the formation of three K-Werke was actually nothing else than advancing the manufacturers to the front. They were first established by Mann, Daimler-Benz, and Krupp, and employed civilian workers. End quote. The K-Werke's entire purpose was long-term repair and maintenance, including overhauls and component exchange. Finally, we have the Kraftfahrpakt-Truppe, or the supply troops which contained wheeled vehicles outside of the operational field unit, Kraftwagenwerkstab companies, Reifenstaffel, Kraftwagenabschlappzug, and Heimatkraftfahrpark, etc. This was the catch-all section for any and all vehicles that fell outside of the departments which had their own K-stand. These supply troops would have the trucks that would take the fuel from the depot to the front line. They're kind of the in-between, I guess you would call them rovers almost. A damaged panzer would not have to go through each of these levels of maintenance before finally arriving at the repair station that it needed to be at. If the severity of repairs warranted going straight to the Heers Group level of the K-Work section, or even back to the factory in Germany, the Heimat Instansetzung, or Homeland Repairs, for refitting or repairs or whatever, that's what would, at least in the best of times, happen right away. Thanks to Lucas Friedley in his book Repairing the Panzers Volume 1, we have an excerpt from the Guideline for Troop Engineers dated August 12, 1942. Quote, 
The repair of damaged vehicles is performed as such. Easily repairable damage by the driver and co-driver, also by the Panzerwort or tank mechanic, as far as they cannot be fixed by the driver and Panzerwort, by the I-Troop of the unit or I-Group of the Panzer company. The I-Troop and the I-Group confine themselves to small, quickly repairable damage, damage that cannot be fixed by the I-Troop or the I-Group due to lack of time or technical capabilities, is then repaired by the I-Staffel by the Panzerwerkstatt company. End quote. This covers the field units up to the regimental level, but what happens past that? The guideline continues, quote, Damage which cannot be fixed by the I-Staffel in Panzer units by the I-Gruppe or the Panzerwerkstatt company is repaired by the division's Werkstatt company or the army Panzerwerkstatt. The division possesses one or several workshop companies, the Panzer Regiment also a Panzerwerkstatt company, that primarily repairs Panzerkampfwagen, end quote. These upper echelon repair units of the division, army and army groups, contain within them their own set of I-Gruppe and I-Staffel and Werkstatt units. They are, however, further removed from the battlefield and thus are able to enact longer-term repairs than the subordinate unit's own I-Gruppe and I-Staffel repair network. In theory, the system should act almost like a field hospital triage. The more severely damaged units would be sent back further behind the lines and up through the tiers until the section receives and then repairs the tank. In practice, this obviously had issues. Bottlenecks of available transports created difficulties, along with the Soviet railroad gauge, which was much wider than the rest of Western Europe, meaning the standard German locomotives would not run on this rail until it was modified for German trains. This process took time, and partisan activity was an ever-present danger, cutting rail lines and blowing up locomotives, as well as other measures of sabotage to clog the arteries of the German repair network. Furthermore, as the size and weight of the Panzers increased, the Panther and Tiger specifically, the available tank transporter trailers and heavy prime movers capable of moving these monstrosities, which were never built in adequate numbers to begin with, dwindled further and further as the war continued. It got to the point that repair units from the I-Group sections always brought spare engines and transmissions whenever a Panther or Tiger went down, as it was oftentimes easier to get the disabled tank moving under its own power than wait for a vehicle capable of towing the big cats. This covers the field unit superior units, the division, army, and up to the army group level. The final point of repairs falls back onto the factories within the Reich. If a panzer was so damaged that none of the in-country facilities could cope with the repairs, the damaged panzer would be loaded and transported by rail back to the Kwerk or back to the Reich itself for any overhaul and necessary refits. The Panthers, as well as the Tigers within the Panzerwaffe, were special cases. The Panzer Instandsetzung services for the Panther, like the Tiger, but we're going to focus on the Panther from here on out. Just know that both repair detachments for these bigger cats are similarly equipped and maintained. These units, which are tailored more specifically for taking care of the heavier and more delicate Panther tank, this means things like the recovery vehicles, the trailers, the workshops, and even the spare parts depots are going to all be geared more towards keeping the Panther operational. Newly minted Werkstattzug Panther units were created to accommodate 
Panzer Regiment 39 for Operation Citadel, and with it came particular amenities not always found in other Werkstatt companies, whom did not have their own Panthers. The new K-Stand 1150A, and later K-Stand 1151, which provides details about the equipment issued to these repair units, specifically things like being issued a gantry crane with a 16-ton capacity to help with the repairs and maintenance for the I-Group and i units in the rear of the advance. Additionally, SDKFZ-9 FAMO heavy prime movers, also known as the 18-ton Schwer Zugkraftwagen, or 18-ton heavy tractor, these were priority issued to the repair units attached to the Panther Abteilungen due to a severe lack of recovery vehicles able to tow the Panther. The SDKFZ-9 heavy prime mover was an 18-ton half-tracked vehicle, <clears throat> the largest and heaviest used by the Third Reich, primarily used to tow heavy guns and assist with Panzer recovery. The FAMO's towing capacity was 28 tons which was more than ample to tow the Panzer III and the Panzer IV tanks, which could also utilize the, bear with me, Tiefladenhange für Panzerkampfwagen 22, 23 ton, also known as the SDAH116 22 ton low loader tow trailer. That's a mouthful. The proposed SDAH118, capable of carrying the 45 ton Panther, never quite materialized in any real numbers, though the SDAH-121, which was capable of carrying up to 60 tons, was also limited in quantity and particularly earmarked for the Tiger and later the King Tiger tanks exclusively. As I have repeated myself several times now, the Panther weighed 45.5 tons. So how does this make the FAMO, with a towing capacity of only 28 tons, Compatible with towing the Panther? Well, it's simple, sort of. Depending on the terrain and how stuck the Panther might be, two, three, and sometimes even four FAMOs would need to be connected in tandem to recover the big cat. And even then, twas not an easy task by any means. To better help with recovery, many FAMOs, that is the SDKFZ-9s, were fitted with cranes, winches, and spades to expedite the process. The FAMO itself came in three variants. You had the plane variant, the 1941 variant, the SDKFZ-91, which was equipped with a six-ton capacity crane, and later, in 1942, the much more rare SDKFZ-9-2, which was equipped with a larger 10-ton gasoline electric crane along with outriggers to help stabilize the vehicle while winching heavy vehicles. The FAMO was produced throughout the war, with about 2,600 of these vehicles being produced. However, with attrition being what it was, the Wehrmacht never had more than 1,500 of these vehicles in service at any given time. In 1943 alone, there were less than 1,000 operational throughout the Reich. Remember, this was the heaviest prime mover Germany had to offer, it could not be committed to just one single task or one single unit. These vehicles were used all over, and unfortunately for the Panthers and heavier Tigers, their availability would be limited on the Eastern Front, and their absence was felt dearly during the large-scale withdrawals following the failures of 1943. 
A final model, a FAMO 4, was discussed using the Maybach HL210 engine. Um, however, n- nothing would have materialized out of the project. It could be argued that the German high command should have anticipated larger tank models and that they might have scaled the SDKFZ9 up further to maybe 25 tons or 30 tons to better cope with the ever-increasing weight of their Panzers, but they didn't. For the Panthers during Operation Citadel and beyond, This lack of heavy prime movers, coupled with a massive shortage of spare parts, especially during the early days of their combat foray, required that immobilized panthers were to be stripped of their usable parts with utmost urgency. Like a comically chopped vehicle on cinder blocks, everything that wasn't welded down was removed. A quick little caveat, road wheels which had become almost immeasurably valuable to the I-Truppen due to the fact that there was no suitable flatbed trailer to load disabled panthers, nor were the roads in any condition for such an effort to be made. Disabled panthers would have to be moved under their own power on their own road wheels, generally speaking the tracks were removed if they were damaged, to a recovery point. Once there, the injured panther would be loaded onto a rail car and then stripped of its road wheels to be used to help recover further disabled panthers. The panther, now stripped of its road wheels, would be sent back to a caveworks to be outfitted with new parts and repaired. The Herculean effort made by the I Truppen to recover and maintain the panthers during their first fight cannot be overlooked, however lacking in capabilities and effectiveness though it may have been. A quick aside, as I am wont to do, mechanic training. It's not necessarily something one might think about when discussing military matters and strategic planning and all of that. I would like to make a point in this regard. Mechanic training, just like driver training or any other training involved with the Panzerwaffe, is a small, albeit extremely important part of the larger whole. In the book I've probably referenced for the most of the episode, Repairing the Panzers, Lucas Friedley provides an excellent bit of information. Quote, Finding enough qualified specialists who also had experience had been a problem since the beginning of the war. Older and thus more experienced personnel were deployed in the Werkstatt Kompanien, repair units in the rear, while younger soldiers, who often had not finished their apprenticeships as mechanics yet, were deployed in the I-Gruppen, or frontline repair troops. End quote. Again, we speak about labor shortages, and especially skilled labor shortages. These would never improve. Before the war, there were not enough well-trained mechanics as it was, and as the war continued, this problem would only get worse. The more manpower that was committed to the war was thus taken from the population at home, and by 1944 and 1945, Germany was scraping the bottom of the barrel of manpower for her frontline troops, let alone skilled mechanics. In a way, it's a self-licking lollipop, because even successful breakthroughs and offensives cost manpower that was not easily replaced, or, or even replaced at all. We've spoken of institutional losses of veterans, but what if the manpower that arrives at the front is chewed up and spit out before it ever has a chance to gain that experience? It was not just that the mechanics lacked training, which consisted of a six-week course by 1944, and hopefully you received on-the-job training that supposedly would commence once the soldier arrived at their unit, though we know, with, again, 2020 hindsight, that this was not always the case. Oftentimes, these replacements would be pressed into frontline units and maybe a new role that they weren't essentially trained for. 
In another such report from frontline repair units regarding the lack of technical training, quote, complaints about the technical state of training of the drivers and demand that the drivers must be able to repair minor damage themselves. The fact that crews were responsible for maintenance halt checks did not mean they were responsible for repair work, end quote. Drivers, I might add, who of course were also inept and unable to perform their duties well because the training they had received was so inadequate that I might call it non-existent. A German driver of a Panther who was taken prisoner in Normandy of 1944 had this to say, quote, Drivers were not allowed to perform even minor repair work. Their job was driving, general maintenance, and control of the tracks. Drivers of the Abteilung had only received a six-week training course in Erlagen. Most of the time, the 15 Panthers were undergoing repairs and thus the training was mainly theoretical. In the first three weeks, he did not even come close to a Panzer. By the end of the course, every driver only drove the Panther twice. End quote. So not only were the Panzerwarte, the Panzer mechanics, ill-trained, even the drivers, who were supposed to be trained to help with the maintenance and repair crews, were woefully ill-prepared to do so. Because of this lack of training, the Panthers were never kept in tip-top shape throughout their lifetime. Even if the kinks had all been worked out, Several linchpins of the Panther relied on the crew and the maintenance crew to know what the hell they were doing to keep the Panthers rolling. This only exasperated the issues found on the Panther, and because of this constant state of unready, the trail of abandoned Panthers littered the steppes of Russia. While the shortages of spare parts have been one of many long-standing points as to why the Germans lost the war, but as we will look into it, it's not just simply the lacking thereof, the system was, in a lot of ways, doomed right from the get-go. We had discussed previously in this episode of the early war HKP, or Heimatkraftfahrpark, and how independent and ineffective that network was of requesting, receiving, and supplying spare parts to an individual support element. By 1943, while the HKP system had been reorganized into a much larger and overall more effective ZKO and Rad Kraftfahrzeug Instansetzung, or Wheeled Motor Vehicle Maintenance Service, there were still many elements which failed to keep up with the advance of the Panzertruppen. The demand of spare parts and the ability to supply these spare parts to the correct units in an expedient amount of time was just simply lacking. From what I've gathered, it would seem the network for requisitioning spare parts on paper was much different from the network in practice. In theory, the required spare parts would be available at the depot. In Group 3, from the Panzer Ersatz Teilager, the Panzer Spare Parts Depot, these depots would follow rather closely the echelon system of the repair network itself, I-Gruppe to I-Staffel, up to Army Group and K-Work level. Depending on the part that was required and the level in which the repair is required would determine where the spare part could be requisitioned from. The part itself could be ordered from any spare part depot, but because of the amount of time required to repair something like, say, an engine versus a road wheel, the Panther would get sent up or down the chain until it was at the appropriate level. Now, this is fantastic when everything is working and supplies are where they are supposed to be. However, and this is especially relevant to the Panthers, the number of spares produced by the firms producing the Panther were exceptionally limited. 
especially prior to and just after Operation Citadel, this limitation could be overcome in certain circumstances by way of air transport or by the blitz fail or the priority rail transport. Essentially, if they needed to overnight something, they could put a spare part on a plane and get it closer to the cavern. However, this too had its own varying degrees of success. Weather permitting, the aircraft might not arrive. Aircraft get shot down, that kind of thing. Not to mention partisan activity along the railways. A partisan, for what it's worth, was any man or woman of military age that Germans found behind their lines, at least in the eyes of the Nazis hunting them. In reality, partisan groups were generally guerrilla fighters who sabotaged, booby-trapped, murdered, or otherwise disrupted the logistics network and the morale of the occupying force, in this case, the Nazis. In Repairing the Panzers Volume 1, Friedley comments about the hierarchy of the repair network being thwarted by the very end users who were supposed to benefit from the damn thing. Quote, Troops did not follow the chain of command and tried to obtain spare parts from unassigned depots or Erzatz Teilstaffeln, or they just skipped an echelon and placed orders at the Heers Group level instead of at the Army Group level. Often, such behavior proved successful and the units did receive spare parts in disregard of the orders. This made it difficult for the army to keep an overview and stay in control. End quote. The problem with leaving soldiers in charge is that soldiers are gonna soldier. And by that I mean these men will do everything within their power and then some just to get the required items for their unit or tank or just themselves. Filling out the paperwork at the proper depot and waiting for a resupply simply was not expedient enough when Hans needed a transmission. He was going to get it one way or another. Even if the entire system had been working as it should have been, and the blitz trains and the aeroplanes were Johnny on the spot with their deliveries, and even despite the weather and despite the partisan activity, the main opponent to all of this was simply a lack of production. In 1943, for example, the Panther tanks specifically, 2,052 series production transmissions were built. That is, produced for a tank order. One transmission for one tank. Only 91 spare transmissions were built. Another way of saying that is a little less than 4.5% of total production for the year 1943 was devoted to spare transmissions for the Panther tanks. Now, just looking at breakdown figures alone, 91 transmissions was not going to cut it, especially when we think back to the Werkstatt Company recovery vehicles going out every time to recover a Panther with a transmission and engine with them. This does not lend a lot of confidence to the system. Earlier, I had mentioned the Zentralersatz Teilager, or ZEL, Centralized Spare Parts Depot, and how when the war first started, this depot was stockpiled with nothing. The only spares available were whatever the manufacturers had on hand at their warehouse, either in Germany or at the forward operating Kvark. This system's failure was not fully realized until the latter parts of the campaign in the east. After Poland, France, and the Balkans, the Panzerwaffe were all too close to their home garrisons and had time to rearm and refit prior to Operation Barbarossa. Post-1941, though, the system was dragging. In Repairing the Panzers, Volume 2, Lucas Friedley quotes Oberstleutnant Luckner's findings in regards to the deteriorating situation 
following the results of 1941 and early 1942, quote, faulty calculation of the spare parts needed, knowledge about the real wear of the individual vehicles was missing, the orders for spare parts were so high that they seemed unbelievable, inconsistent and faulty calculation of the vehicle stock, time-consuming supply routes, spare parts were ordered by the front ZEL from the homeland ZEL and by the homeland ZEL from the manufacturer. Due to this, time was lost and a large number of parts were always listed as in transit. Missing specialized workshops in the area of operations, which could have repaired the handed-in replacement devices quickly, the damaged devices were returned to the workshops in the homeland. Because of the long transport distances, the stock of such replacement-ready devices was very low. Insufficient transport organization, most of the trains going to the front carried expendable goods, such as fuel, ammunition, and provisions. Spare parts, on the other hand, were only transported in single wagons attached to the trains. New components could only be received if exchanged with a damaged component. Absence of a central administration which had authority over the situation. End quote. If the German industry had been able to keep up with these numbers, which was honestly above and beyond anything they could have hoped to have achieved, even during the best years, which by now were far, far behind her, they would still have been unable to match the production of spare engines, final drives, and transmissions to that of what was demanded in the field. This hardly even considers that everything else on the Panzers were taking a beating. Suspension, road wheels, tracks, torsion bars, running gears, things that did not seem as important when rolling through France, but on unimproved roads and vast distances found in the Soviet Union, the need for replacement and rebuilt parts was confounding the supply chain. After Operation Citadel's conclusion, the spare parts deficiency had reached its peak, and even Reichsminister Speer had something to say to the manufacturers in a letter dated December 21, 1943. Quote, the intensity of the battles at the front requires the complete deployment of all Panzerkampfwagen and Sturmgeschütz. To completely utilize and maintain the combat readiness of the vehicles, the production of spare engines, transmissions, and final drives, as well as the production of the therefore necessary spare parts, independent from the new production, need to be raised to the highest degree. End quote. I find it absolutely fascinating that the German high command believed this system could work. I know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the Germans had a lot of broke and didn't really do a whole lot of fixing. Prior to the war in the East, this HKP, HKO, ZEF styled system worked. Because again, sort of from a confirmation bias, the early campaigns prior to June of 1941 did not have to worry about the vast distances, the lacking road network, the completely different railroad gauge, and the brutal terrain which all but guaranteed this network would fail. Attempts were made to remedy the situation and had to begin with the manufacturers. The supply of spare parts was the responsibility of the KFZ Park and the ZEL, both of whom reported to the Erzatz Teil Buftschachten des OKW, or Spare Parts Office of the OKW. This echelon of the ever-expanding universe of the repair network 
was in charge of ordering spare parts from the manufacturers based upon the request made by their subordinate units. To increase the production of spare parts, and to avoid any interference with the series production, the manufacturers began to expand and extend their production lines so that they could focus on both series production and spare part production. This program, which would have otherwise been expensive if not for the Adolf Hitler Panzer Program subsidies, which the Waffenamt fully endorsed. Prior to the war, it was expected, at least according to Shell, that, quote, in peacetime, and at the beginning of the war, it was reckoned that 10% of the charge weight of vehicles was needed for spare parts, because of the necessity to also keep the oldest models running in the middle of 1942, this number had grown to 40% of the charge weight, end quote. Again, the half lessons learned during the early days of the war, alongside shortages of raw materials, meant the spare parts required for the continued campaign at its current rate of attrition was unsustainable. Grasping at straws and attempting to will the armaments industry into being able to keep up with the demand was never going to work. Even if the industry was able to operate in a vacuum without having to worry over increased Allied bombings, convoy raiding, and constant offensive campaigns all strangling Germany's war efforts, her ability to get materials to the appropriate places was beginning to suffocate the Wehrmacht and most especially the Panzerwaffe. The increased demand, which was not operating hypothetically, nor was it in a vacuum, was in reality becoming increasingly impossible for German industry to compete, marked by failings up and down the network, subcontractors unable to meet deadlines, labor shortages, transport difficulties. For instance, the Reichsbahn considered the transport of material from one subcontractor to another as private goods, not Wehrmacht goods, causing searches, seizures, and delays. This is further exasperated by the lack of raw materials like rubber, steel, and oil. Because of these shortages, the required machine tools to manufacture spare parts were all but non-existent. Something, something, Butterfly Effect, starring Ashton Kutcher, does a great job in explaining chaos. Oh, wait, 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 whoops. We're doing a history podcast. The idea, though, is still relatively relevant to our story. These seemingly small issues, like labor shortages, which might be a hotbed political issue in peacetime, was magnified a thousand times during war because a labor shortage doesn't just mean less production. This little problem snowballs with the rest of them to create the bottlenecks and outright stoppages of war production during a time when that is simply unacceptable. To put it bluntly, the German war industry was in a state of constant catch-up and would never be able to fully meet the demands of their army in the field, or even half of what might be needed to realistically believe a positive outcome was still possible for the Third Reich. I'm not sure which is the worst assessment, that the repair network was woefully ill-prepared for the Soviet Union, or that the repair network could not anticipate the increase in demand once the fighting in the Soviet Union commenced. It would seem overly confident of any nation to believe that they could just wing it and forage or live off of the land once they got there. I mean, hell, half of the German staff officers in the East were carrying around earmarked copies of General Kaliankor's with Napoleon in Russia. Even Hitler seemed vexed not to repeat the same 
or similar mistakes as Napoleon when invading Russia. Yet we have all of this evidence before us that once again, the hubris of man's determination to conquer the unconquerable would ultimately lead to abject failures and the suffering of millions. For Hitler, this meant he was willing to sacrifice his Wehrmacht, his Luftwaffe, his Kriegsmarine, and even Germany itself. However, the Wunderwaffe were beginning to come online and hit the battlefield. I know I've used this term before, but failed to explain it. Obviously, it's a German word, which literally translates to wonder weapon or miracle weapon. Hitler believed in these supposed technological marvels, the Panther being one of them. He hoped that these Wunderwaffe would deliver the Third Reich its final victory against the Allies and Soviets. Despite the shortcomings of the repair network and the obvious existentially ever-present sword of Damocles, the Third Reich soldiered on. The problem with this attitude is that no matter what sort of hope the Third Reich possessed, it was never going to overcome the increasingly difficult task in front of her. There simply were not enough spare parts, recovery vehicles, repair facilities, nor was the logistic capacity ever present in an adequate way for the German panzers to continue rolling. This, combined with the Soviet counteroffensives following the 1943 Operation Citadel failure, left very little doubt in those who could read the writing that this war was over, at least in the sense that victory was no longer an option for the Third Reich, defeat was inevitable. It was only a matter of time. All right, folks, that will do it for today's episode, I think. I know I wanted to break into the Burger Panther and go a little bit deeper into the FAMO Prime Mover. I think that this is a good stopping point, since next episode, I can get us into the variants a bit more and work our way through the remaining Panthers. Sensing how far we've come in four episodes, my feeling is that I will be able to wrap up the Panther series in six episodes, maybe seven. So we've got a couple of more, at least, before we close this series out, after which I will need to take a small break to buy some books, read said books, start digging through the research material I already own, and start writing the next series. I'm pretty sure that I want to tackle an allied tank next. I won't say which one exactly, because my mind is not completely made up yet. But don't worry, that won't be until we are well into the new year that we start the next series. I'll keep you all updated and post a promo or maybe a teaser of sorts on one of my feeds so that you can prepare your earballs for some more tank talk. As always, I can be reached via email at thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at thepanzerpod, and on Instagram at thepanzerpodcast. I've been posting updates here and there, as well as some photographs of the Panther D, as well as some other tanks. If you like the podcast, please drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you can. I would really appreciate it, as it does help out the podcast reach new audiences and lets me know how I'm doing. Until next time, I'm John Burgess. Thanks for listening. Mir geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil du mich gut verstehst. Und mit Rat und mit Tat als mein guter Kamerad mit mir durchs Leben geht. Ich will Freude und auch Leid mit dir teilen. Ohne dich fang ich gar nicht mehr an. Mir geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil ich dein Freund sein kann.